powdered milk. You had me until you said powdered milk. Then I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> the needle. I don't know if I can do the needle in my. <laughs> exactly. This is like a thing. It's like a. It's um. You know, my mother's always like, "This fresh milk." I was like, "No, you don't understand. There is just something that takes with this goddamn needle." Oh My name is Lily Bakala Piper, and I am so glad that you have tuned in today. If you are a Uproot listener, Karibu Tena, I am so glad that you found my relaunch show, Salam and Hello. And if you are brand new to this space, Karibu Sana, I'm so glad that you are here. I am so delighted to be back in your ear, on your playlist bringing you stories of joy and justice from Africa and the diaspora. If you used to listen to Uproot, you'll know that I spent a lot of time talking to people, everyday people, extraordinary people, authors, activists, who were doing things in the continent that really inspired me. And I want to continue doing that with a laser focus on joy and justice, two pillars that for me really anchor the experiences that I have had as a daughter of Ethiopia, a resident of Nairobi, and an immigrant to the United States. So I hope that you will continue to tune in each week as we bring you new episodes from more people just like you and I making their home here on the continent or in the diaspora. And to kick us off today, I have a fantastic conversation for you with Abdi Latif Tahir. Abdi is the East Africa correspondent for the New York Times. Prior to joining the Times, he reported for Quartz Africa, for Al Jazeera English, for United Press International, the East African. And Abdi, like many of us here, is a child and a son of this place who has an international platform to tell the stories of the region. I really appreciate Abdi's work and have been reading him since he joined the Times in 2019. And one of the things I appreciate about him is not only his expertise about the China relationship with the continent, his ability to write nuanced stories around business and technology and politics, but also that he spends time elevating the stories of culture and food and art from the region that we all love and cherish. I really think that is so very important as we think about the stories that come out of the continent that they aren't just stories about conflict and tensions, but stories about the things that we experience every day here that make this place a place we want to be, a place where we build our homes, a place that we treasure and, and love. And so Abdi's stories and Abdi's platform are incredibly important for all of us here who are storytellers and are trying to put out a story about Africa and her people to the rest of the world. You know, many of you are probably familiar with Binyavanga Wanaina's very famous 2005 satirical essay about how to write about Africa, where he says that if you're going to write about Africa, you need to make sure that your characters should are colorful and exotic, but empty inside with no dialogue, no conflicts or resolutions, and have no quirks or depth. And one thing that, you know, Abdi has really done in his writing is make sure that there is depth, that there is nuance. And in our conversation today, he talks about the choices he has to make in his reporting to make sure that he doesn't just put out 
the facts in a story, but that he adds the depth, that he adds the color, that he adds the breadth of the story that humanizes the characters and the individuals that he is reporting on. And that comes with a great responsibility. When you are a son of this place as a Kenyan Somali, he is local to the region. It comes with an additional responsibility that journalists who are not from here don't carry. It comes with an emotional tax that we talk about in this conversation. It comes with an added weight when he gets leader, uh, letters and feedback from readers about what they felt about what he said and what he didn't say, what he included and what he didn't include. And so I really found this conversation enlightening as a fellow storyteller who is trying my very best to talk about the content in a way that dignifies its individuals and also elevates the breadth of diversity and creativity that I find here. Abdi's insights and wisdom are, are just words that I will take with me and hold on to. And so I really think you're going to love this conversation with Abdi, the East Africa correspondent for the New York Times. So enjoy the episode. Thank you for having me, Louis. I appreciate it. So Abdi, for our listeners who may not know you yet, but I hope they do, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work. I was born in Nairobi, Kenya, and uh, spent uh, the better part of my life here, but I also grew up in Mogadishu, uh, Somalia, uh, for several years uh, of my childhood. And so I like to say that, you know, uh, my head is in Nairobi, but my heart is in Mogadishu. I'm a journalist. Uh, that's the one thing that I wanted to do all my life. Uh, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a writer, particularly. I studied uh, university in Kenya. I went for my grad school in, in uh, Columbia Journalism School in New York. And I have worked with local publications here in Kenya, and, you know, uh, regional publications uh, covering the region. Before uh, 2019, I, for three and a half years, work, was working with Quartz, which is a digital publication based out of New York. I worked in their New York offices, and I also covered East Africa for them as a journalist. And then in 2019, I joined the New York Times, where I took up the title of East Africa Correspondent. And that essentially means that I cover several, you know, up to like a dozen countries, uh, both in East and uh, even uh, a bit of Central Africa and, uh, and, and uh, you know, yeah, so that, that's sort of like, that's the span of like the journalism that I, I've been doing and I, I'm kind of involved in, yeah. Thanks, Abdi. I, I, I remember seeing uh, your byline first pop up with reading the Times. I have to say I am a subscriber. I pay, I actually pay. For the times <laughs> so Thank now you. Um, you know they have they do have the firewall up but i also a paywall whatever it's called but I, I actually pay for my subscription and i remember seeing your byline come up and then seeing the announcement about your post so it's not just that you're the east african correspondent for the times but you are the first east african to hold that position and and that really mattered to me it mattered to me as an ethiopian as a nairobian of you know many years does that matter to you? Tell me, you know, as somebody who's always wanted to be a journalist and wanted to be a storyteller, what did that title mean to you? Well, first, it it, it mattered to me because it was a dream come true, right? Uh, this was a, a journalism job that I uh, I had wanted for a long time. And when I was living in New York, I made, you know, connections with some editors there and, 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 and I really wanted to work at the Times, as would many other journalists for many, many years. 
And um, it, but it also mattered to me, as you say, because I, uh, that I was appointed as the East Africa correspondent because as I come from this region, right? I belong in this region. I am ethnic Kenyan Somali, but I also partly grew up in Somalia. I have family all across this region from, you know, from Tanzania to Ethiopia, to Djibouti, uh, to Sudan, you know, families and friends in different capacities. So it was very important for me to also be able to have the opportunity to write about the region where uh, I have my roots on at and where uh, particularly also the, it came with a, a huge responsibility in that when I write these stories, they're not just going to be read by our global audiences, you know, uh, whether they're sitting in, you know, in Hong Kong or London or New York, but they're also going to be read by family members and friends who are in this region who are going to more or less like, you know, question and push back and be of like, course. you know, yeah, we don't agree with this point. We don't agree with this coverage. You know, wh wh why did you focus on this issue? Why are you not writing about this issue? So it was also like a, I knew that I was taking on like a, 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 a big uh, job in that sense. But also I think finally, like, you know, representation matters, right? I think there's something deeply powerful about seeing someone who looks like you, who speaks like you, taking up a space in a powerful media outlet. And as a, as a young Kenyan Somali, like I grew up listening to uh, Ahmed Hassan Auke, and you know, at the BBC Somali, and this is, you know, t generations of Somalis will tell you that he was the familiar voice that uh, wherever you are, you know, whether you are in the refugee camps in the Dab or whether you are in Minneapolis or whether you are in Australia, that he's the voice that everybody tuned to to listen when the mm. BBC Somali service came in. And then, of course, I also grew up like, you know, watching people like Raghi Omar being at the BBC or at ITV and, and watching his journalism also at Al Jazeera. And there's something that comes with that that I think that is very important. And I, it wasn't lost on me when I was appointed to this position that I was also taking up a bit of that. And it's, it's very important for me because it's not just important that we tell our stories, but that we also inspire the next generation of journalists, the next generation of storytellers who are going to be able to tell the story of this region and Africa and beyond uh, uh, in, a, in a way that is more nuanced and, and much more complex. Thank you for that answer. You, you've said so much there, so I want to have a conversation with you. Um, you said so much about why both representation matters and also the tremendous responsibility that you carry, you know, as a son of this place, as a journalist who has all kinds of integrity that you must uphold in your reporting, in your fact checking, especially in this era, right, where misinformation is rampant. So I'd like to just to, to, to follow up on some of the things you said about that responsibility, because you have written about the region, of course, that, that's your job, but you've also written about the personal suffering that you, you've experienced about the death of friends in Mogadishu. Tell me kind of what that costs you to both hold pain uh, of what, when things happen in the headlines in Mogadishu, in Nairobi, in Addis Ababa. It's not just a headline for you, right? It can feel personal. What is that like for you to hold the facts of a situation and also the pain and the weight of it as the son of this region? That's a fantastic question, Lily. I think where I would begin is, is that it's very important to place uh, people and their personal stories and place more value on those stories rather than just the numbers, right? I think when you hear about dozens of people killed in Ethiopia or like terrorist attacks that are recurring in Somalia pretty much like every other day, I think it's you know important 
and we have a responsibility to bring those stories to the readers. But we also have a responsibility to build relationships with those readers. And how do you build relationships with those readers is not by, by writing the figures, like, you know, 10 people have died, this is what happened, this is the context. No, I think people have an innate desire to relate. That's part of us as human beings. And I think that is not, that doesn't come by chance. It's not cultivated by chance. It is good writing, good reporting, narrative storytelling that in many ways allows us to create that connection. And so when I, when we report some of these stories about attacks, usually what you will see for instance in our reporting is that we will have like a day story, you know, where we would say, this is like recently uh, in October, there was a, October or November, I can't remember the exact number, but there was a major attack in Mogadishu and over 120 people were killed. And so we will have like a first day story where basically we are now reporting, this is the number of people who are killed, this is what happened. We're basically reporting the facts. But on the second day, we always, almost always follow up with a story where we're now digging into who are these people? What were their ambitions? Why did this attack happen at the Ministry of Education? Why were all these students lining up? Is there an accountability journalism there in that, you know, the government and the, the security forces, did they fail these people to make sure that, you know, their security was guaranteed when they were in this place? And I think we do that because we are, we have a responsibility both to those people, but we also have a responsibility to our readers. And it's something that, you know, I and the people at the desk, you know, at the international desk take very seriously. But it's also in terms of like building that connection with with uh, um, that emotional connection with the readers, that is when we start hearing from readers. It's on the second day story about, you know, when you talk about, for instance, the attack that happened in Mogadishu on December 28th, 2019, uh, where 81 people were killed. And all of, you know, when we wrote about, I've, I went to Mogadishu actually, and I wrote about, you know, how one of the buses that, you know, that was caught up in this explosion was the bus uh, full of medical students in a country that is very poor, you know, war-torn. These were the, the, the next generation. This was the hope that the country was waiting for. A lot of them were, were about to take their final exams uh, and graduate. And, and I wrote about some of the family members, some of the victims uh, who died in that attack, and, and went into the bedrooms of some of those, you know, there was this one family, this was the only kid who had ever gone to high school. He was the only kid who had gone to like college. He was about to graduate from medical school. And, and one of the things that we just, I described in the piece was like about his handwriting because his father just like had all his notebooks around him and he was looking at those handwriting and he just like kept saying that, you know, I remember how he would always like his cursive handwriting. And somebody wrote to me saying that, you know, when they got to that part of the story, they couldn't even finish the rest of the story because they're like, you know, this is, that was for them in many ways, like, you know, it showed the agony that the family was going through, that they just didn't lose this one person that was very important to them, but also the particularities of like losing that person and, and the ambitions that the father and the mother had for their kid. Yeah, I think it's, for me, it's very important to like, yes, we report the facts, but we also have to build, write about those people with a lot of humanity and create that connection that will bring a lot more readers to, to our story. You know, I'm, I'm moved by what, you, what you're saying, but I'm also, it 
brings to mind a few things. One that, you know, in the United States, in the wake, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, as the momentum has picked up for the movement for Black lives, there has been this drumbeat of say their names, right? Because we want to humanize those victims and not just have a body count, but we want to bring humanity to these tragic stories. And yet so much of what I'm hearing you say is this, it's a tremendous uh, responsibility, but also a tax on you that I feel, I just wonder if it's a tax that you would not carry if you weren't a Kenyan Somali, if Mogadishu did not feel like, if it wasn't home, and if that's even fair. But then I guess, you know, you chose to go into journalism, you chose to be a storyteller, so I guess in some way you've chosen this path, but but it's not lost on me, that tremendous um, responsibility. And, and tell me, you know, you, you've mentioned a reader who's written to you, you know, kind of just how moving that was. You must also be hearing from readers who then also expect you, especially with a platform like the New York Times, to elevate every story right to the headline. And and how do you manage that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think first I, I have to make it very clear that that I I I pitch pretty much all my stories. It's it's very rare for like you know direction to even come from New York. Yes, I do have like very deep uh, conversations with my editor about the region. And, uh, and and what we should be covering. And they almost never say no. They, you know, they, <laughs> as you know, uh, you know, I cover, as I said, like up to 13 different countries. They, you could write a story or two or three from each country every single day. Absolutely. Uh, they, there is a story that that could be written, yes. And, and, and we're talking about a global story that our audiences are interested in. So in many ways now, we have to be able to sit down and say, what are we focusing on? You know, what matters now? How can we plan the rest of, you know, three, four, five, six months in advance and say, these are the stories that matter. These are the people that we should be looking at. These are the larger trends in the region. And then also within that coverage of the news and following the news, and because that's our daily bread, right? Like that's what we are following every day. Like we, we you know, we're in terms of, you know, as you would say, like, you know, the people of record or, you know, whatever you want to call it. But you're covering the news and that's that's essentially our bread and butter but then also there's tons of stuff happening off the news and that's where the challenge is now in terms of how do you focus on the on the arts and culture scene how do you write about the the the, the books how do you write about the literary spaces how do you write about 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 fashion right in east africa and and and, and all that and 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 how do you make sure that that you know those when you cover those topics, that they are as relevant to the readers who are here as they are to the, the readers who are abroad who are going to read the stories. And so that's... Absolutely. Because, because yes, I think that there's, there's a way in which we have to cover some of these um, newer trends and newer spaces that are coming up with the um, importance that they require with the delicate because it, you know some of these spaces are very delicate, and like any piece that comes out in the New York Times could make or break that. And so, how do you cover that? How do you follow that story? How do you like really interrogate what's really going on in some of these spaces? And then, of course, as you say, like these these the the readers who are writing from every um, you know they write from the diaspora, they write you know from within the region. They, they you know sometimes if they know me, they text me, they call me, they you know I get calls from you know my my professors and. Uh, they're like, this story has been on the local dailies all this time and you guys have not covered it. Like, you know, why have you not covered it? So you get those questions. And and it's very important, like, you know, sometimes to like be able to like 
you know, to just be able to say like, yep, I'm one person. I cover this, all this region. I think these are all the stories. I am aware of this story. I think it's relative. I think it's important. And, uh, and sometimes, yes, we will quickly turn our attention. The, the other thing about this is that about coverage and framing stories is also that do you quickly jump on the story and do like a, a quick news story? Do you report the story, take a few more days and do like a quick enterprise story about it? Do you take a week and a half to and do a feature story? Do we say, okay, this is really important. We're not going to touch it now, but we will take, you know, we'll take it up in like, I don't know, six months. We'll do a long investigative piece about it. Right. Um, or this story has really been covered by everybody. What is it that we can say that is different? And that is where now the conversations and the, you know, particularly sometimes like, a, I think this is an important point I should mention is as somebody who's from this region, there are things that I could be, that are every day, I take granted, you know, every day, you know, because it's just like, I see these things every day. But when I mentioned it to editors uh, or, you know, colleagues who are not in Nairobi, who maybe have never been to Nairobi, and I said, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Like, oh my God, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. Nobody knows about it. I was like, yeah, but we've had this for 40 years. Like, I don't think it's a story yeah. for us. Give, give, give me an example, too, um... Abdi. What, what strikes you as that ex- unique thing about this place? An example is like uh, a story I did, I worked on last year about the milk bars in Rwanda. So I've been going to Rwanda for years. Everybody in Rwanda sits around and drinks. They chug milk all day, every day. It's like people sit in these spaces and they're just like, do, you know, in between interviews, like, you know, we'll be like, oh yeah, the driver, but do you want to get milk? Do you want to get milk? And I was like, oh my God, how much milk are we going to be drinking? And I've been doing this for years and years. But last year, like I was going for yeah. this, to do a bunch of like, you know, very, um, you know, how do you say this, like you know, human rights related stories, so heavy stories, right? And in the final like email that I was writing, I was like, yeah, maybe we should write about this. And they're like, excuse me? Like, what do you mean? Like people just sit around. <laughs> and it was, <laughs> yeah. And it was one of the most read stories last year, at the International Desk. It was uh, at least the most read International Dispatches. I wrote it for the dispatch section. And the, I mean, I got an output pouring of love and letters from all over the world from south korea to alaska Fantastic. literally people just being like these are the type of stories we want to hear this is what we want and it, again like it's not just about writing a positive story i think it's about writing a nuanced complex story about how did this country come to have this Absolutely. relationship with milk what is the place of, of cows in rwandan culture how does the government come into this? How did the genocide of 1994 figure into all of this? So it's a complex story once you start getting into yeah. it. And those are some of the examples that sometimes I'm like, I'm blind to this thing. So let's have a conversation. This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm seeing. You know, here's an email of what Nairobi has looked like over the past few weeks. And my editor's like, oh, that's fascinating. Let's pick on that. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that story for so many. I mean, you think about like chai and, and coffee in Ethiopia and just how that's everyone the world knows these things about us but the milk that that is um that's news to me too and and what a beautiful way to to honor that country but also tell a nuanced story being Yvanga would be proud i think of that kind of story coming out of this place and and adding to the portfolio of the many wonderful things that people don't know and appreciate about this culture so so let me kind of circle back a little bit to again the, the diaspora i want to do an episode in the future called the diaspora you can't live with them you can't live without them because you know there is this sense of 
they're ever present with us. You know, the holidays are coming up soon. Nairobi, at least, and Addis Ababa surely will be filled. I don't know about Mogadishu, but there's certainly this culture of coming back for the holidays and, you know, they'll be filling the streets. And in Ethiopia in particular, you have really, you've covered the war very extensively over the last two years. And I'm sure that you are hearing from listeners about that reporting and not just your own. I'm sure you end up probably being a target at times or, or the people, the person that listeners go to with their feedback, even if you didn't write the story, if it's shown up in the Times or in any media outlet in, in abroad, I'm sure the Times can easily be the place that people place their feedback. So I, I'm curious to hear, you know, in this war that has really torn apart families in the diaspora, in on the ground, it's been a heartbreak for all of us who are connected to Ethiopia in any way. You know, tell me, what, what are you hearing from readers in response to your articles? The, I think a secondary story to the war itself has been this tremendous engagement of the diaspora online and elsewhere with the stories and tremendous pushback on the representation of what's happening. Um, can you share a little bit about what you're hearing from listeners about the stories that you're reporting on? Yeah, and, and I would like to even start uh, before the war. Uh, I mean, when the protests, uh, uh, the Oromo protests were going on in 2015-16, and, and I covered parts of that mm -hmm. when I was in, in New York, and, and I went to Minneapolis and Washington DC where you know there was a large internet shutdown uh, okay. in Ethiopia and and a lot of Ethiopians who were in some of these places were protesting against the government were not able to get their voices out so the diaspora figured really uh, you know quickly into this space and to fill this gap and and so you had um, people like activists like Jawar Muhammad who was in Minnesota at the time and sort of like you know sitting down with all these activists sort of like trying to get the message of what was actually happening on the ground. So in many ways, early on, 2015, 2016, 2017, when these protests were going on, many journalists were relying on those networks in the diaspora to get a sense of what was actually happening on the ground because of the internet shutdown, the telecommunication shutdown. And then fast forward now to the war in 2020. And uh, the war started in November. I was not able to get into Ethiopia, but I went to the border of Sudan and Ethiopia in December 2020 and and basically was at the Takeze River where, you know, a lot of like Ethiopians were crossing over into Sudan into Sudan and, and basically were literally meeting people who had fled their homes, uh, who had endured massacres, who had um, lost everything, basically, because also the war started right when everybody was about to begin harvesting, right? And yes. so people walked out of their homes and, you know, um, all their livelihoods and all their farms and things that they have been working on for years and years. One of the people that I interviewed uh, in Sudan was a very old couple. And they basically had fled Ethiopia in the 70s and the 80s when the war was going on. They fled again that part of uh, Tigray region when the war with Eritrea was happening and they came to Sudan. Mm -hmm. So twice they had lost everything. And this was the third time that they were losing everything. And I spent an afternoon with mm -hmm. them. And one of the things that um, they told me was that they will never go back to Ethiopia because now that they were in their 80s mm -hmm. and they had lost. So they're like every decade we rebuild and then we have to go back and then we rebuild and we have to flee. And so they're like, there's no point of like going back. It's it's done. This is, you know, we have just come to the conclusion that Ethiopia is where we're going to be buried. Mm -hmm. And this is where our story ends. 
And it was interesting to hear about their aspect and their story because they just weren't talking about their story as if the, it was only affecting them. They were talking about their story in the context of the, the larger crisis that has dogged this region and, and basically saying that how many more times do people in Ethiopia, in South Sudan, in other parts of Somalia, like how many times do we have to flee? How many times do we have to come to the recognition that we're just one people, we should be living in peace, we should be thinking about the future, we already have enough troubles. And, and that's what like really stood out for me. In terms of like hearing from readers, one thing that I really hear about is the psychological toll of the war and how many, many people, families have completely, you know, never wanting to discuss, friends completely torn apart, people who've left social media completely and don't have stopped keeping update, you know, updated about the war. Particularly people, I'm talking about people in the diaspora, at least, you know, if you live in Ethiopia, at least, you know, in one way or another, you're going to come into a sense of like what is actually happening because you're living there. But I mean, people in the diaspora, including people who live in Nairobi. And so it's interesting. I also do have a friend who lives here and 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 every time I bump into her, it's like, you know, you want to ask about those questions. You want to ask about how she's feeling, you know, ask about you know, how the family back in Ethiopia is doing, but it's um, it's a no-go zone. Like, that's that's just some, and you do, yeah. and that's a bad yeah. that she carries around with her. So so that's 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 been one thing that I've, I've, I've heard about. The other thing is now, particularly with the, with the peace deal, you're starting to hear a lot about, you know, this is a society that's completely been torn at the, you know, up, the fabric of society has completely been torn. So what does justice look like? What does reconciliation look like? How do we move forward? What does Ethiopia look like five, 10 years from now? Uh, uh, you know, how does it rejoin uh, the rest of the world and the rest of the global economy? And, 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 and so, so that's also like another tough question that you hear. But, but yeah, I think the enduring thing about this war has been the vitriol and the hatred and the misinformation that has pervaded all of the social media over the past couple of years. Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, yes, I've been at the tail end of it. And it's like, you know, you really get attacked. People write to you on WhatsApp, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook Messenger. They will find you on any platform. They will find you. <laughs> they will find you and they will invoke God. They will invoke Prophet Muhammad. They will invoke Jesus. They will invoke everything to, you know, make sure that uh, you hear their side of the point of view. Uh, they will attack your family. They will do all sorts of things. And, and, and it's, you know, and I'm not saying that I'm even like, uh, I'm not even the, uh, you know, their colleagues and other journalists who have just been, you know, like the attack on them has been very, very incessant. At least for me, it's like maybe when I write a story and then it lasts for like two, three, four days or like maybe sometimes it lasts for a week early on in the war and then it goes away. But there are colleagues who've like just, it's incessant, it continues and and and, and it does it does take a toll about, but then you, I just have to completely remind myself every day that we are reporting on this war and any other crisis or any other story in this region without fear or favor. And, and that is the motto mm. that is stuck at the back of my mind that we, you know, we don't, you know, 
we just have to tell the way this story is happening and we have to get to the end of it. And so, yeah, that's, that's. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, I do recognize that it's, you know, I, always, I tell my kids this, you know, freedom isn't free. And that, that applies to whatever. I use it in a very parenting kind of way. But um, but in, the, in this, it's true for any sector that we're in, you know, free press, freedom of movement, freedom of human rights. All these things come at a cost to somebody. Somebody had to fight the battle to go there. And so in the, this instance of free press, it's, I, I appreciate that phrase. I will, that will stay with me that you report without fear or favor, um, because it does require that in this very complex and nuanced place, because for every story that you write of the family that's Across the border into Sudan, you know, there's a family that stayed and now has paid any price to rebuild or has paid is paying a price to, you know, restore. I mean, there's the, the stories are endless um, and, and we appreciate those of you who are willing to keep telling the stories um, as much as the feedback you get, I'm sure, is is. Uh, very harsh at times. I think we still depend very much on those reports because we can't get to those borders ourselves. Um, to continue that conversation, you know, here in Kenya, we have a new president a few months ago. And um, in his first conversation with the press, President Ruto, I, I want to read it exactly. Um, you know, there was just some speculation about how his engagement with with the press would be and with the media. So let me just read exactly what he said. He said, um, I believe in the freedom of the media and that the media has a role to play. When I criticize the media, it's because I believe in the media and I want the media to do the right thing. So kind of given the context of the conversation we've had today, Abdi, you know, what does that statement mean to you? And, and what is the right thing that you think that President Ruto might be referring to when it comes to the media? Just a very light, easy question for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, particularly because this is a young administration. But I think I think context is important here. Where I would go, where I would start the story from is a decade ago. We have to remember that uh, President Ruto was part of an uh, Uhuru Kenyatta's administration. He was a vice president of Kenya. And I think his administration human rights groups, rights groups, press freedom uh, agencies, you know, they have all documented all the ways in which that administration of President Uhuru Kenyatta, former President Uhuru Kenyatta and Vice President Ruto, how they muzzle the press by threatening journalists with arrest, shutting down broadcasters. They starved media outlets of, of advertising revenue. Um, they, you know, uh, people in government basically warning journalists that they did not have full freedom as guaranteed by the Kenyan constitution. So we have to remember that that's where we are coming from with this, with this equation. And then, do, of course, and then during the campaigns uh, over last year and this year, you know, of course, like, you know, the, the uh, Ruto did complain about bias. His campaign said that, you know, they were not being uh, covered well by uh, local media outlets and that, um, you know, that his opponent, uh, the former prime minister, Raila Odinga, was the one who was being favored uh, in, in coverage. And so here he comes, he wins the elections. And... Uh, and we start hearing about this thing about, you know, the right thing to do. I don't know what the right thing to do is, but he one thing that I think stood out for me is that he made those comments um, uh, before, right after he, I think he was president-elect, he was declared president-elect 
and before his inauguration. And we do know what happened. And he did those, um, and we do know what happened uh, during the inauguration in that um, media outlets in Kenya. So basically what the campaign uh, Ruto's team did is that they, uh, they limited access of local television stations to the, to the inauguration by handing exclusive broadcast rights to uh, South African pay TV uh, multi-choice. And the argument was that, um, well, multi-choice is partly also owned by the Kenyan uh, Broadcasting Corporation, but then we do know that local television stations try to get in. They try to negotiate this. Um, uh, when I reported that story, you know, also uh, uh, President Ruto's team were like, no, there's not going to be enough space for them to park uh, near the stadium to do this. Um, you know, but in many, for many people, it was an ominous sign that this is what you're going to be doing on the first day of, you know, your, you know, your presidency. And so uh, I don't want to speculate uh, about what's going to happen in the future, but um, it's going to be interesting to see how his administration uh, is going to be able to like, you know, deal with the press and, 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 and how they, you know, look at press freedom, uh, even though he's come out to clearly say that, you know, they expect to be criticized and, but uh, how much, you know, they're going to be able to like handle criticism or independent reporting uh, on the government, particularly as this phase of the honeymoon is, is over. It's just been four months so far. So, yeah. So TBD, so I hope you'll maybe come back on the show, maybe six months from now, we can revisit that question and see uh, if the right thing was the right thing. <laughs> so absolutely. And I, continue. Absolutely. And I think, and I think the, the question around press freedom goes beyond just Kenya, right? Like, you know, you, you know, you look at the, the situation in Northern, T, uh, Northern Ethiopia, the Tigray region where the war is going on, journalists have not been able to like get in there. Um, there's an internet and telecommunication shutdown, so information is not coming out. Getting press accreditation is a full-time job in East Africa now. And I say that full-time job in the sense that you literally waste days, if not weeks, looking for accreditation, writing an email after an email, you know, uh, including governments asking for journalists to be cleared by the international police before they give them accreditation. Wow. So uh, the question of press freedom and, and access to, you know, whether it's in Sudan, whether it's Tanzania, whether it's Uganda, whether it's the Congo, it's a very, very important issue. And I think um, an issue that, you know, we will need to talk about a lot more, particularly because uh, not a lot of journalists have big media outlets who are supporting them, who are able to pay hundreds of dollars in accreditation just so that they're able to get into a country for two weeks. So um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, so that, you know, that, that, that what you point out is, is so key because we do, you know, this is where, you know, I wanted to have a conversation with you because I'm, I'm sure I'll hear from people too, to say, why didn't you talk to reporters from the daily nation, which we value and uh, appreciate. And you were a reporter for the nation, but the reason, you know, you have a platform at the times that I think very few could argue, you know, it carries weight, it carries gravitas. There's, no, no way anyone can dispute that. No matter what country or continent you're in, the New York Times carries the weight and the power of that platform wherever their reporters go. And the headlines you put out will make a difference. And like you said earlier in our conversation, you know, how you report on something could, could change the political scene somewhere. And so we have both this tension we're living with, with accreditations that are hard to get for press in the region. And also we have, you know, this African proverb, right, that, um, you know, unless the lion tells their side of the story, the story will always glorify the hunter. 
And so we have these talented African and Kenyan and Ethiopian journalists who want to tell the story of the hunt from the perspective of the, the lion and not just the hunters. They want to tell the story of grassroots movements and of communities and of individuals that not only humanize the, the headlines, but also you know, give context and give nuance and give the details that take us beyond that you know, acacia tree sunset <laughs> that everyone envisions when they hear about the continent. And so I guess, Abdi, you know, in your role as this East African correspondent, how much of your role is to help elevate the voices from the ground of the lion, of the communities, and how much of your role is just to simply report the facts? I know you've talked a little bit already about the pitching you do and the process, editorial process, but you know, I'm, I'm really struck by both the, the, the scope of where you report on. Uh, I think you might need a few more correspondents, quite frankly, um, but and and also, you know, the the depth of the responsibility and the challenges that your colleagues at local media houses face um, that really far outweigh what what is reasonable for them to do their jobs. Yeah, I think that's a very very good question, and and particularly for somebody who comes from this region, right? Like, you know. And who, I think one thing that I, I take with me on, on every reporting assignment is that the stories I write and the issues I write about and, 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 and how we write about them, it, it just doesn't impact me. For me, it's just not a story. It is the story because it's, it, it will impact one way or another. Uh, and I think uh, as humans, we like, and this is what we were talking about earlier, like this idea of relating to the issue. As humans, right. we relate to the issue much more when I know, oh yeah, the war in economy, the war in Ethiopia is going to decimate the economy, and when it does that, oh, I have cousins in the eastern Somali region whose businesses will be impacted. This is how the war, uh, you know, on terror or 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 you know that you know the terrorism in Somalia impacts people I know. You know, when there's an explosion, you know, yes, you're jumping on the story quickly to write about it, but you're also thinking. Oh, this is that ministry. I know this friend who works at that ministry. Um, like the last attack happened at the Ministry of Education, and I know three, four people who I literally was with in Nairobi a few weeks before that. And I got onto the, you know, the, the my, my, what's happened just quickly was like, oh yeah, you know, while you're trying to get the facts right so that you can put out something quickly, at the back of your head, it's like, oh, okay, so and so also works at the ministry. Are you at the ministry? Oh no, I was actually outside of it. Are you safe? Is so and so safe? So. Um, so it, it it takes on that issue of of you know this is just not a story that I'm reporting it's something that is also going to uh, impact. I don't think we necess I necessarily at least engage in in advocacy journalism. I don't think uh, that's that's our place. But I think where I engage in being an advocate is in the breadth of stories that we write, and 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 that essentially means that first of all saying that we are not a single story. Uh, region like this region is not just about one thing it's not just about disasters and, and civil wars and, and challenges right so we write about Burundian drumming and and the complexities of Burundian drumming uh, it's featured in Black Panther but Burundian women are not allowed to play this so what does it say about Burundi what does it say about Burundian culture mm -hmm. but at the same time we also write about I leave a story like that and we go write about hunger in Somalia and the politics of famine and, and, and what, what goes into defining what, what famine is, right? We write about the, 
you know, the intrigue in Somali and Kenyan elections that we're just discussing, right? And, and, uh, and, and, and the challenges and the opportunities that come with that. But also we write about the president of Tanzania, the first female president in the region and, and the complicated story of her rise to the top. And I think, you know, as we talked about, we, talked, we write about the milk bars in Rwanda. And uh, as much as we write about a dentist who's created the only ambulance service in Mogadishu and, and, and how that is, is changing people's lives. And, and we write about the, the geopolitics of debt and, and, and how China figures into that and the environmental challenges that, you know, the activists are raising. And as much as we write about, oh yeah, this infrastructure has actually opened up entire regions to business and, and it, connect, it connects people. And, but there are also all these other issues. I think bringing out those nuances is where the advocate in me comes out. By, and mm. I think, um, yeah. and it's not necessarily saying we have to write about the lion. The lion is roaring. The lion is, you know, Africa is the future. You know, East Africa has some of the youngest people in the world. Like, you know, uh, we must write about them because of that. No, no, no. It's not about that. There are the trials and tribulations. There's the positive and the negative. You know, there's a lot of shades of gray in between. And I think it's very, very important to tell to tell that. That's that's Absolutely. where I think I'm the advocate. Thank you for that. Yeah, I was I was watching um after the Morocco game. I'm calling it the Morocco game. I don't even remember who they beat. Oh, Portugal. They beat Portugal. You know, and one of the super sport commentators, I don't know if you were watching that match. I'm sure you were. You know, they said, Africa, your hour is nigh. I was like, nigh? Yeah. Please welcome Karibu to Africa. We've been being about it for a long time. How are you going to tell us it's nigh? I was so annoyed by that phrasing because you're right. It's the lion is roaring. Da, 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 da. You know, the fact of the matter is we have been creating and moving and, you know, building since the beginning of time. So it's a matter of finding but more paths, I think, for that story. And, and so I appreciate that answer. Okay, let me turn to some lighter questions. What have you learned as a reporter of this region that you didn't know as a national of this region? That's a very, very good question. I think what I learned is to be skeptical and to be, to question mm. my own process of reporting much more. To be able to say, I would go into a Somali's mother's home to report a story about the famine or food prices increasing or and being able to like walk in there and have the language and the vocabulary. Uh, I always thought it was easy. I always thought that, oh, I'm going into this house. This is going to be easier for me than when I'm in like, you know, southern Rwanda and I can't speak in Rwanda and I need a translator. Um, right. But I've learned that, no, like, you know, it's, it's, it's good to be, to go into these conversations um, with as much more novelty as I would go to any other conversation if I was sent to Southern France to report a story. And to be able to, and people will be like, you know, in the past, maybe I would say, you know, somebody would say, oh yeah, you know that, you're a Somali, you know that. And I'll say, yeah, yeah, I know that. But then I've gotten to a point where I was like, no, I actually don't. Explain it to me. What does it yeah. really mean? And that is where the greatest answers come out. So I learned more about myself as a Kenyan, covering the Kenyan election this year, which is fascinating. Um, 
uh, and traveling across the country. What did you learn, just, Abdi? Now I have to know, what did you learn? <laughs> no, it was, it was very interesting. I mean, you know, particularly around the question of, of violence and how people look at violence and how violence is deployed and, and, and why this election, um, you know, uh, did not pan out. Like, you know, like th there was a bit of like, you know, what, one day they were in the Rift Valley in Wasingishu County. And um, we had heard that some houses had been burnt the night before. And this was the days leading up to the results being, uh, you know, results were being counted. And immediately I had that, like, you know, next morning we drove, we like drove three hours into the, you know, this lush, beautiful village. And uh, when we got there, it was like two houses that had been burnt, but about 400 people from different tribes within that community had already gathered for what they called the peace meeting. And they had lobbied wow. themselves. They had congregated themselves. They got everybody to come out of their homes and sit in this church compound and basically talk about the importance of peace and why politicians will, you know, debate and discuss and sort out their issues in Nairobi and in hotels while people who are on the ground will be the ones who kill each other. And so in many ways, uh, I went out reporting this election being just being like, yeah, we're going to see what happens. And we drove through tons and tons of counties and spoke to people across the country and, and whether young people, old people, people in voting lines, people who are not voting. But it was that moment sitting in that village with hundreds of people, young, old, uh, talking about the importance of peace and their loyalty to the idea of Kenya. It gave me so much hope and it gave me like, uh, it's sort of like, I don't want to say patriotic Kenyan, but it, 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 there were emotions that came inside me uh, that, you know, I was like, um, this is, I am supposed to be here right at this moment as a Kenyan covering yeah. this story. This is the, yeah, this is the moment I was born to be at and, and cover. And, and it was very, very important for me because um, I've always had complicated feelings about being a citizen and, and what it means and the duties and the responsibilities that you carry, particularly as a Kenyan Somali in a country that where we are minority and, and these tons of issues all the time. So yeah, so that's what I learned, yeah. But there are tons of more other yeah, stuff Yeah, that's too. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like you're gonna come back not just once, but maybe twice. So you have to have, an, I guess, just a whole nother conversation. Abdi, I'm gonna be one of those cousins on WhatsApp, you know, like <laughs> texting you now, asking you to come back and again and again, but that's really a powerful thing. Did you, did you get a chance to write about that by chance? What you observe? No, I, it's it's definitely in my notebooks, along with so many other examples like that. Uh, but it, it's 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 again, it's one of those things that you know, like we were covering this election, like the breadth of it. We had live briefings, basically reporting across the country, moving from county to county on election day when you know election troubles were happening, when the results came out, um, and and it was interesting to see the dynamism in this country and the idea of like how do we share the pie? I think I think that conversation is happening at a much more intriguing level on the ground than is being portrayed on, 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 on national media uh, because Absolutely. the national media is very narrow focused. It's focused on specific individuals and being able to see that human aspect of it and, and on the ground was, 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 was really fascinating, particularly for me as a Kenyan, you know, and as a citizen of this country.
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That That's really, it gives me a lot of hope as well. Okay, so, you know, we, we like to close out our show. My, my the pillars I try and guide every, every show about is, is around justice and around joy. So, Abdi, two quick questions for you as we wrap up that I always want to know. One, what brings you joy? And please tell mm -hmm. us your favorite drink from Mogadishu. We're both Nairobians, so I just know you'll say chai or something. So we're not going to ask about Nairobi. But give us your, your favorite Mogadishu beverage and, and tell me what's bringing you joy. What brings me joy? Um, quickly, yes, I think running brings me joy. I am running? not Elliot Kipchoge. Running brings me joy. I am not Elliot Kipchoge. <laughs> I am not into the whole business of let's go do this marathons. <laughs> I, I run marathons. I run half marathons. I love them, but I do them solo. And I make sure I do not run with my younger brother who will probably listen to this um, because he is an <laughs> incredible fast runner and, and, uh, very dedicated runner uh he inspires me but i'm like bro you go to the front goodbye i will see you in <laughs> 600 hours <laughs> or not your pacer <laughs> that's great. he's annoying in that sense yeah he like goes and comes back and i was like are you not like supposed to be finishing this I'm like, so I disrespectful know, whatever so yeah, disrespectful like, so running brings me joy and, and it's something that i really um particularly running in Karura Forest, which of course, as you know, like is, is linked mm. to the history of, of Wangari Madai and, and uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, yes. and who early on recognized the importance of parks and forests and the interconnectedness of deforestation and poverty and food insecurity and disenfranchisement. And I think that is, when I run in Karura, like that is buzzing in my head about the vision that she had, particularly in a city that is continuously where we are cutting trees and we are sort of like becoming, uh, you know, clearing spaces and building tall buildings. So uh, that that always sticks in my mind. So I always never take that for granted and it brings me a lot of joy. One other thing I would mention, I think particularly this has sort of like taken an interesting turn over the past year or two um, that brings me a lot of joy is is great friendship and company. I think particularly around a table filled with good mm -hmm. food, um, and uh, and I like the intellectual challenging conversations that come from those dinner tables. And it's um, you know it it it's sort of like the fact that they're fascinating people around a table talking about not just about themselves but also about the bigger things in life. I think it's is is very uh, interesting. It reminds me of this quote by Toni Morrison in in Beloved, where she says that you know, um, one character is like you know she's he says that this woman she's a friend of my mind. She gathers me the yes, pieces I am. She gathers she gathers, me. She yes. gathers them and then gives them back to me uh, back in all the right yes. order. And that is what over the past year or two that has that has happened for me in my life, and I've really been grateful for that. I've had friends mm -hmm. sitting at dinner tables who are just like able to hand me back whenever they leave my apartment and I'm just like always like really grateful and holding on to that um and my oh, beverage beautiful. yes it is yeah and and my beverage you know from Mogadishu I mean what else are you going to say Somali tea <laughs> is there any other thing <laughs> but you know this, okay, is, fine. this is the original Somali tea though this is like I'm talking about <laughs> cloves cardamom cinnamon fresh ginger, you know, and, Ooh. you know, Somalia has some of the most livestock in this continent. So this, you know, in many ways, I mean, there's famine and also stuff happening now, or, you know, at least bracing for famine, but, um, and there's a lot of fresh milk around, 
but I just love my tea with like the powdered milk. Yes. There's a lot of fat people do with powdered milk and a oh. bit of sugar. Oh my God. Okay. I sweat after okay. that. Like every time I land in Mogadishu, I literally tell the hotel or where I'm going to stay in advance, please, this is the first thing I want to have when I land. And I sweat it off and I'm just like, okay, I think we're ready to do some work. I'm home. <laughs> I'm home. <laughs> so yeah. powdered milk, cardamom, cloves, cinnamon, ginger. Okay, I'm going to put the recipe yes. with this podcast in the show notes and I'll have you fact check it. But Abdi, I, I hope to have you both around the mic and around a table again soon. This has been a real joy to talk to you. It's been a joy for me. And thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, Lily. And you started this conversation with Bini Avanga Wainaina. And one line from his book, One Day I'll Write About This Place That Stays With Me, is the mm. last line in the book. And he basically says, we fail to trust that we knew ourselves to be possible from the beginning. And I just want wow. to thank you, you know, for for inviting me and 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 uh, you know for for believing that we we are possible, we are possible. That's just the perfect way to end this conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Lily. It's been an honor. Thank you so much for listening today. And thank you, Abdi, for being on the show. I really do look forward to sharing a cup of tea with you and having a follow-up conversation sometime soon. Listeners, I'd love to hear from you on all of my platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's at Salam and Hello, S-E-L-A-M and Hello. And you can also email me, Lily, L-I-L-L-Y at salamandhello.com. L-I-L-L-Y at salamandhello.com. And of course, the website is the same, salamandhello.com. So basically, just Google Salam and Hello and you'll find me on all the platforms. And of course, tune in next Tuesday for a new episode of Salam and Hello. Peace. just full of such wisdom and insight my goodness i hope your notebook is in you know you keep it in under lock and key so you can write that <laughs> book that i know that book is a book is in you so i hope that you're keeping that notebook you know close closely guarded really thank you so much we should definitely gather at the dinner table very soon yeah for sure. We'll do some injera. I hope you can. I, I, do you like injera? I get really mixed reviews. You know, some people love, most people love it, but then there are a few who are like, ah. Okay. No, no. So injera when, when is my vibe. Yeah. All right. I'm going to have you over for injera. I don't know about the Somali tea, but uh, the powdered milk. You had me until you said powdered milk. Then I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> the nido. I don't know if I can do the nido in my, in my tea. Exactly. This is like the thing. It's like, a, it's, um, you know, my mother's always like, this fresh milk. I was like, no, you don't understand. It's just something that takes with this goddamn nido. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's so funny. When you say that now, I can see the kiosks and Addis. Like, you know, at a distance, you can see those nido cans, you know? <laughs> like, exactly. The, the exactly. kiosks. Oh, my goodness. Um, That's yeah, so funny. So. Uh, Abdi, this was such a pleasure. Take it easy these couple of days. Really take it easy. I will. I'm just going to cook and garden and read. That is all I'm doing for five days. So... <laughs> Oh my gosh, you're such an old man. Listen to you. <laughs> well, I am Sounds beautiful. So yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I saw I saw your graduation date. You're younger than me. But anyways, enjoy. Enjoy all those moments. You deserve it. Be well and take good care. And thanks again.
Okay. All right, Thanks so much. Bye.